Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Hey, this is Chris Kimball, and I need your help. We're working on a story about the battles we all have in our home kitchens. Maybe you're tired of your partner telling you how to cook, or maybe they always leave a mess. Or maybe you're frustrated by your loved one's highly restrictive diet. We want to hear about your kitchen dramas from the biggest food fights to your everyday grievances. You can leave us a voicemail at 617-249-3167, 617-249-3167, or send a voice memo to radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. One more time, call us at 617-249-3167 or email us a voice memo at radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. Please include your name and where you're calling from, and thank you. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, for our recipes, culinary ideas from around the world, or our latest cookbooks. Now, here's this week's show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Today we're chatting with YouTube powerhouse and Korean-American home cook, Mong Chi. Like a modern-day Julia Child, she dives into the from-scratch world of Korean cooking with enthusiasm, skill, and also a hearty appetite. She loves Korean cooking so much that she finds French cooking tame by comparison. I went to France, and the stinky cheese was so delicious, but... Three days after, I got tired of this. I couldn't swallow anymore. (laughs) I need something spicy. I need the kimchi. Also coming up, Alex Inews wonders if the kitchen of the future will have a 3D printer. And we make a savory bread pudding. But first, it's my interview with archaeologist and anthropologist, Gerilyn Morrison. Gerilyn, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So you're uh, an expert on Minoan cooking. Um, so <laughs> let's start with Minoan culture. This was, you know, a couple thousand years BC. Is that right? That's correct. It's, it's, it was uh, right after the Neolithic period in uh, Crete. And so it started around 2000 BC, more or less, and uh, ended about 1500 BC. So about three to 5,000 years ago, more or less. So 
let's describe uh, or have you describe what it is you dig up. That's a rather crude way of putting it, I guess. <laughs> no, uh, I think that's correct. <laughs> so you dig stuff out of the ground. Correct. And as a result, you're able to figure out what people ate and how they cook the food. So how do you get from what comes out of the ground to figuring out their culinary past? Okay, well, that's a really great question. And that's exactly what we do. So what I focus on really is kind of the daily life. And like, instead of what they would be doing in these amazing administrative palaces, um, I do more like what would be happening and what would be like a home or a building. And so we take a lot of different soil samples um, inside and outside these different uh, structures that we find. And um, it's pretty laborious, but we actually wash the soil. And through that process, we find carbonized and mineralized seeds and bones and shells. And we can look at that. There's various specialists that look at different types of material, organic material. And um, they're able to identify it, first of all, which is very important. And then second of all, look at the way it's preserved. Like if it's a crushed seed, for example, like if it's a crushed grape seed, then most likely you can make an argument that it was used for wine, pressing wine. If it's like a burnt bone, then you can make the argument, for example, that it was barbecued rather than chopped up and put into like a cooking pot for like a stew. So transport me back to 1800 B.C. in Crete and I walk into, well, the kitchen may have been an outdoor kitchen, but I walk into the kitchen. Uh, what does the kitchen look like and what are they cooking with? You would typically find like some carbonized, you know, charcoal made from olive wood or plain tree wood called platanos or uh, what is the other one? Almond. Almond tree we find a lot. And then you would find these big belly pots with three legs, which are the iconic uh, Minoan cooking pot that everybody loves to cook in. No, no, the, these are terracotta. These are pottery. That's correct. They're made out of uh, local earthenware. So each area on the island used local clay to produce cooking pots. They also had like circular trays, so they could have been baking or sauteing. So, you know, we can look at the cooking pots and understand like even in the household level, you know, in the outside or in the inside, they were using different types of cooking techniques. Let's get to the ingredients and the recipe. So let's just go through uh, let's say a dozen items you know that were core to their diet, the ingredients. Okay, so basically we have a lot of grains. So we have like barley and emmer wheat. We have brown lentils. Legumes were a big part of the diet. So brown lentils, chickpeas, fava, broad beans, fava. Um, we have a lot of sheep and goat, a lot of sheep and goat. We also have a lot of pork, which is surprising mm. to a lot of people. And we have a variety of different types of seafood. So we have like a lot of medium and small size fish like pirate fish, mullet, um, petalidas, which are limpets, you know, these little shellfish mm-hmm. that stick on the side of rocks, uh, clams. We also have a lot of figs, which I think people are very familiar with, figs and almonds. Is there one recipe or combination of ingredients particularly stand out to you based upon all this research? Well, everybody loves the lentils, the lentil recipe. And I really, I like that one as well. And I like it because it's such a great teaching tool. I mean, what the way we cook it is we cook brown lentils, we use coriander seeds, and then we top it off at the very end with honey and then sea salt and fresh olive oil. Do you come to any conclusions or insights about the people themselves based on the cooking? Well, I think that's a great question. I think that they were extremely versatile. They looked like they were eating a variety of of different types of food. You know, they had this extensive trading network across Crete. 
they were extremely great craftsmen. They could build two and three story houses, yet they didn't they weren't really concerned about building a kitchen. And so I think that they had a very kind of um I don't know exactly the right word to use for for their attitude or seemingly attitude, but very portable lifestyle about cooking. So that says something about like their daily work and attitude towards cooking and eating, you know, but I like it. They were extremely flexible in that. And so it was kind of like, you know, maybe if they were working in this area of the of the fields or if they were working in this area of the house, they would like cook there while they were doing their thing for the day or you know, they were cooking at their friend's house, so everybody grabbed their pots and went over there and cooked. It, it must make you think, though, as we always think as cultures progress, things get better. But cooking the way someone did on Crete in 1500 B.C., you might start to get the impression that people actually had better diets and better food 3,500 yeah. years ago than they do today, right? I would agree with that on many levels. Gerilyn, thank you so much uh, for being on Milk Street. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. That was Geraldine Morrison. She's an archaeologist, anthropologist, and potter. She's also the founder of Minoan Tace, a social enterprise promoting the culinary history of ancient Crete. It's time for my co-host, Sarah Moltenai, to answer your culinary questions. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television. She's also the author of Home Cooking 101. First, I have a question for you, Sarah. So we talk about salt all the time, right? This kind of salt, sea salt, purple salt, pink salt. What kind of salt do you use? Diamond kosher. So just a basic in-the-box. Yeah, I mean, for almost everything, except occasionally I'll use Malden as a finishing salt. Finishing salt. Okay, well, that's a good answer. Same as me. All right, let's take a call. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Uh, This is Elizabeth from Medford, Massachusetts. Okay, how can we help you? So I like making bacon sometimes on the weekends, and I usually make it in my cast iron skillet, but it's usually not a great success because the center of the bacon ends up cooking very quickly, and it's basically burned by the time the outer edges get crispy. I've been making it in the cast iron skillet because I heard that cast iron conducts heat the most evenly, but that doesn't seem to be happening, so I'm not sure what the problem is. Well, I'm going to sort of go left and tell you what I usually do, which is to bake the bacon. Ah. Do you have cake racks? You, you don't have to do it on a rack, but it's better if you do. You know, oh, like, like a this, cookie Yeah, like rack? a cookie rack. So I put a cookie okay. rack, preferably a square or rectangular one, inside of a sheet, you know, a rimmed sheet pan. And then mm-hmm. just bake it in the oven at like 350, 400, and it will stay flat. It will cook evenly. The mm-hmm. fat will come off, which you can then save for cooking later or do whatever you want with it. But it's very okay. consistent. It really, to me, is the best way. Yeah, it's great. You just right. spend 20 minutes heating your oven up and <laughs> for breakfast. And then... But you don't have to maintain it. It doesn't, I, I know, it doesn't it... spatter all over the top but of then your you stove and your shirt. But you don't get poked in the eye There's nothing better than fat. coffee bubbling away in a nice pan of bacon and it's all over the room. is all over the house. Spritzing you. Yeah. You no, still smell it in the oven. Well, to, to answer your question about cast iron, it does hold heat well. It retains heat well. Mm-hmm. And once it heats up, it should heat evenly. The problem is yeah. the bacon's not touching the bottom of the pan it curls evenly, up. curls up. It doesn't when you bake it. One it way, lies flat when you bake it. You made your point. I didn't say the flat thing before. Sarah and I are actually not married, even though it sounds like we are. <laughs> um, so you can but add water. Is it crispy? Is it crispy? 
oven? Yes. When you put in the oven. Yeah, no, Sarah's right. Total control. It's it's a good technique. I just find heating the oven to make six slices of bacon crazy. Add a little water to a skillet. I use a regular stainless steel skillet. If you add water to it with the bacon, then it will evenly cook the bacon and the water will dissipate over time. And that actually does a pretty good job. Maybe it's a quarter inch, you know, eighth inch. That way all of the bacon is getting cooked at one time. The microwave in between paper towels does cook the bacon evenly, but it's not crispy, I find. Yeah. Which I don't like. Something nice about like the cast iron skillet feel. And yeah, look. it does cook evenly. It's just the bacon starts to curl, and that's the problem with that. But the oven okay. is the best method if you want to take the time and energy to heat it's, up your it's oven. It's easy. It's okay. so much All easier. Right. So much less messy. You know, I, I think we should do a show with two hosts that don't have strong opinions. Have no, no, no. <laughs> that would be boring. <laughs> that would be boring. Anyway, Elizabeth, thank you. Thank you. I'll give that a try for sure. Thanks. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? It is David Fain from Mercer Island, Washington. Hi, David. How can we help you today? Well, I was listening to one of your recent uh, podcasts, and you were talking about the benefits of having a pizza dough rise over multiple days and how that enhances the texture and flavor of the dough. And I was curious whether that approach would be applicable to other doughs, whether they're, you know, bread doughs or egg doughs. And if so, how would you care for the dough over those days? You're talking about yeast dough, correct? Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. I'm going to let Chris go with this one because he's the bread person um, here. The, the answer is sure. It'll work with any dough like a bread dough. You basically use about half a teaspoon of yeast you know, for a single recipe. You mix it and knead it the way you would normally and then put it in a slightly oiled bowl covered in the refrigerator and you can let it sit for up to three days. Then you take it out shape it and let it rise a second time. And that works great for pizza, but it works for almost any bread. And it's similar to, you know, a pouliche, right, which is a cup of flour, a cup of water, and some yeast, and you let that sit overnight and then finish up the recipe on the next day. So time allows the dough to hydrate. It allows gluten to develop because water and flour develop gluten on their own. And most of all, it helps to deliver and build flavor. So if you did a pizza dough that's three-day ferment in the fridge, it'll be much easier to work with and have much more flavor. It's, I just did it uh, last week. You have uh, a recipe in the magazine, don't you? Yeah, it's very easy to do. It's just use less yeast and let it ferment. It's a cold ferment in the, in the fridge. Am I right in thinking also it has to be a pretty wet dough? No. Water and flour, like in no-knead bread, develops gluten if you give it time, but it works whether or not it's a wet dough or it's not. It's a wet dough or not. Okay, my yeah. experience has been always with wet doughs, so that's why I asked that. So absolutely, uh, and just throw in the fridge in up to three days, and it'll be much easier to shape it, and that it'll taste much better as well. It'll also give you a better sort of bubble and chew as well. David, that answer your question. Yeah, well, thank you very much. Okay. Yeah. Take it, care. It did very much so, and I yeah. appreciate it. Thank you for the call. Yeah. Okay. Take care. Bye. Bye. Take care. This is Milk Street Radio. If you have a cooking question, please give us a call, 855-426-9843. That number, one more time, 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? You've got Alex on the phone from Lexington, Massachusetts. Okay. How can we help you today? It turns out that my family's favorite dessert now is pavlova. And it's a particular uh, type of pavlova with a crunchy, 
exterior shell and a soft kind of marshmallowy interior. The problem for me is that there are many pavlova recipes out there, and any type of insight you have would be really appreciated. Well, let's start by defining what a pavlova is so people know. It's egg whites and sugar that you beat with some other ingredients added, and then you plop it onto a sheet pan and you put a little indentation usually in the middle, and then you bake it, and then it becomes crispy on the outside, gooey on the inside, and you usually pile fruit on top. Standard meringue is you start beating the egg whites until they're really frothy. And you start beating them slowly, not at a breakneck speed. And then you increase the speed and slowly add the sugar very slowly over time. Are you Uh, using cream of tartar or lemon juice in the recipe? The acid is white vinegar. That's fine. That was another question. Can I use lime juice? Can I use apple cider vinegar? You can use any acid you want. It just will give you a more stable, creamier foam. It helps if your egg whites are room temperature also. So what I would do okay. is make sure they're room temperature and then start beating them slowly. Once they get foamy, add the cream of tartar. Then you can increase the speed a little bit till you get to soft peaks and then start adding the sugar. British recipes will call for castor sugar, which is finer sugar. And you can take regular sugar or super fine sugar, which is bar sugar. But you could also take regular sugar and throw it in the food processor and grind it up so it dissolves better. You know, one thing we haven't talked about is baking. Yeah, so, let's get there. That, I was just taking yeah. them up to the point I mean, of, the, of glossy peaks. The so. problem is probably in the temperature, the humidity on the day you did it, the temperature and how you bake it. Right. I would do the low and slow myself. Yeah, so like too. 250. So h- how do you bake your pavlova? Usually it's 300 or 325 for the first 10 minutes and then I'll drop it down to maybe like 25 or 40 degrees less, and then let it finish for an hour. I would also make sure your oven's professionally calibrated so you know exactly what temperature it is. I would make sure there's acid in it. I would beat the sugar in slowly, would not heat the whites, and I would do it low and slow. When you do it low and slow, I think it's easier to get it crispy on the outside because you sort of dry it out. You're evaporating the moisture. And make sure it's not a hot, humid day when you do it. So a drier day is better? Yeah, you, yes. you want a cooler, drier day. The humidity is going to be a not, problem. not help out too much. Yeah, Alex, thank you so much. Thanks, and Alex. Good luck in Pavlovaville. Yes. Yeah. Yummy. Thank you. Okay, okay, take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, we're talking Korean food with YouTube star Mung Chi. That and more after this break. 
and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. This is Most State Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Home cook Emily Kim launched her YouTube channel in 2007 after having been addicted to online video games where she assumed the name of Mong Chi. Her YouTube following has grown to three and a half million subscribers, and now she's the author of Mong Chi's Big Book of Korean Cooking. Mong Chi, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you for having me. I love your YouTube channel. Uh, yesterday, I watched you pull the guts out of the head of a four-pound octopus in Nice. So, <laughs> and you, you know, re- you remind me a bit of Julia Child. Being, oh. <laughs> well, it, the, the reason is you have an exuberance and a quiet confidence in what you do. So uh, let's go back to something you talk about. Uh, in 2003, you got divorced. Your kids were grown up. And then you decided that you wanted to play video games. <laughs> so <laughs> so how, mu- how many hours a day did you play video games? And, uh, and what was the appeal of all of that? The... Actually, you know, when I was living in Korea, if my children did some, you know, internet game, I gave them hard time, hey, study, study, you know, instead of playing right. game. But when I was living in Toronto, Canada, almost three and a half years, I was addicted to playing game. Just uh, once I came home, after dinner, I studied playing game until maybe 1 a.m. Hmm. and then go to bed and then next day again. And Saturday, Sunday, so all day almost. So that was like another world, and it was so fun. And the term mangchi was the, the, the name you used when you played the games? Yes. Mangchi is in Korean hammer. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you go from playing video games to making YouTube cooking videos? My son, he asked me, Mom, have you ever heard about YouTube? I said, Yes. Yeah, he said, why don't you share your recipe on there? Probably, you know, because my son thinks that I'm the best cook in the world, you know, just like other sons to their moms. So my first recipe was a spicy stir-fried squid. I wanted to shock people because when I removed the guts of the, the squid, large squid, everybody is very surprised. <laughs> You mentioned um, a blind date picnic with a few oh. <laughs> other couples. So is this idea of a picnic, blind date picnic with other couples, a common thing in Korea, or has that just happened to you? Yeah, these days I'm not sure what's going on. You know, when I lived in Korea and just uh, officially I can date from uh, university. So hmm. first, uh, as a freshman, that's we are busy meeting boys from other university. I was a captain of my department, and I kind of organized a you know, meeting, kind of blind date. So we just uh, talked to the other, you know, the boys' school, and then we just meet first, you know, captain by captain. Okay, so let's uh, get together. How many people are you, you are going to bring? Okay, 10 people. I'll bring 10 people. So we never know whom I'm going to meet on that day. But just we, okay, everybody bring lunchbox. And then my grandmother, mom's side grandmother was there, my mom was there. And 
those guys are big deal. So, wow, my daughter is going to the, you know, some picnic, and then she may meet a nice boy. We got to make it very impressive. So my grandmother made all kinds of side dishes. <laughs> she made pan fried the beef or all kinds of stuff. And then eventually I put it in my backpack. That's my backpack is almost full. <laughs> my grandmother made the chicken. And the chicken was a soy, kind of soy sauce uh, marinate chicken. And then she used the margarine, but later, you know, so I just changed it to butter. But really tasty, and everybody loved that. So so do, do you think the boys were more are looking for the food or the girls? Actually, the, they are looking for girls, of yeah, course. Yeah, of course. You know? yeah. But I, just I, never, I never remember his face, nothing. <laughs> Only I remember the chicken, chicken. my grandmother made. <laughs> well, it's, and that's why you went into cooking, because you can't remember the boy, you just remember the chicken. That's, yeah, uh, yeah. that's telling. <laughs> um, let's talk about Korean cooking in general. Could you give us a, a, a commercial, a sales pitch? I mean, if you're going to sell Korean food to America, could you just explain to us why it's something we absolutely should know about? The, uh, the reason is simple. Delicious, you know. <laughs> That's a good answer. Yeah, really delicious because that you know I love food from all around the world. I know that why all Korean tourists from Korea came to America. They still go to a Korean restaurant. Why? Mm. Because that's delicious. Some people criticize them. Hey, why don't you taste some American or some French food? Right. But French food. I went to France. And I couldn't believe that, you know, just uh, so such a delicious, stinky cheese was so delicious. Mm-hmm. So I love, love that. But three days after, I got tired of this. I couldn't swallow anymore anything. Hmm. <laughs> I need something spicy. I need the kimchi. So you're saying French food's kind of boring, right? <laughs> no, no, I cannot say uh, boring. I love it. I love Italian food, all Japanese food, all kinds of food, but... I'm, I was born right. in Korea, so without the kimchi, I cannot survive. What is it about the flavor combinations? Because uh, you said big flavors, spiciness, kimchi. Obviously, it's, it's, it's extremely flavorful. What, what are the basic flavors in Korean cooking? That's the, another thing I like to emphasize, diverse. Why Korean food is so popular, diverse. So flavor and taste are all, texture, all different. So, like, uh, people know that, oh, Korean bulgogi is sweet, you know, sweet marinated beef. Only they know that. But we don't eat only sweet bulgogi. We always mix it together with some spicy pungent one or some salty pickles. And also we are eating sometimes like a kind of a soft, you know, eggplant. So, actually, spicy food and non-spicy food, you know, all different Let's go back to the uh, octopus. Um, I'm sorry. I, I, I just couldn't stop watching you massage an octopus. Thank um, you. Um, yeah. So could you just just take us through how you do it? And you started by saying all the guts are in the head. So so how, how do you start cleaning an octopus? Okay, I will tell you a funny story. My friends, Canadian friends, they watched my octopus video. And they, they said, oh, my God. I'm so afraid of Mangchi. If I make her angry, she may put my head inside out. <laughs> Just like well, octopus. <laughs> it, that occurred to me too. <laughs> uh, 
So, I think you were scared. That's why you keep mentioning. <laughs> well, I mean, you got your hands right in there and just pulled it out. So, so how do you do it? Oh, you just uh, you know first uh, octopus, and there's you know the head, head inside the all intestine inside the guts. But you know Koreans are usually just blanch in hot water. That's it. But my own way is that I want to make it a little smooth, give them massage. Well, with what? Sometimes salt, but sometimes flour. You know, the wheat flour is very good to clean not only octopus, but also some intestine, you know, pork intestine things. You just uh, mix this all massage and then smells all gone. So that's a very good tip. Um, <laughs> so let, let's talk about two other ingredients. Uh Dried sea cucumbers. So what are they and how do you use them? Oh, the dried sea cucumber, you need to uh, soak this very well. When it gets soft and just uh, slice this and then you stir fry with all kinds of, you know, some of the other seafood together in really delicious. The texture is very kind of jelly and a little bit chewy and really tasty. Well, it goes to show, just like sea urchins, that Something tastes different than it looks because sea cucumbers yeah. are pretty ugly. Uh, th- th- I'm sorry, they're, they're just really ugly. <laughs> I know, I know, them, but, but I I totally understand. You also did you see the sea squirt? Yes, that that was my next question: is what's a sea squirt? Oh, yeah. I never heard of that. <laughs> I was raised in you know the city of Yosu, which is a harbor city, and this is a full of seafood. And the sea squirt is very famous there. So around in the springtime in May, the sea squirt time coming. Oh my, so tasty! And sea squirt is look like a grenade, you know. The <laughs> oh, <good. laughs> color is red. <laughs> and also, uh, sometimes people call this a sea pineapple, right. isn't it? Like a kind of a good name. It look like a pineapple. Yeah, that, that's a good name. Yeah. Yeah, you just cut it, and actually, that when I explained this about this creature uh, to for my this cookbook, and my editor and me, oh my, we exchanged the emails, so many emails, because she wants to make sure what it is. <laughs> well, so, you, you also said to your editor, I love this, they wanted to take out some of the, the, the things that they wouldn't think would appeal to American audience. And, yeah. you, and, and, you, and what was your answer to that? I always say that, you know, the, I'm making 150 recipes. This is only one recipe. Even though you don't like it, what's the big deal? But if, without this, there is no party in Korean cuisine, you know? <laughs> so please, put avoid this. <laughs> good for you. Yeah, you're not backing down. That's good. Yeah, yeah. So because definitely that's my favorite food also. Well, that, that, that's exactly what Julia Child, I'm sure, said to her editor at Kanaf was, this is staying in the book, please. Yeah. Uh you mentioned, I think, going to your father's grave at yeah. one point. Mm. And it, tell us about the tradition of going to an ancestor's grave and talking to them. Yeah. Um, usually in Korea, like, you know, the, the, my father's, you know, death anniversary, all get together, you know, people visiting, the, you know, his tomb. And then we bring always food, his favorite food. And I visited my father's graveyard a couple of years ago. I made doshirak. Doshirak is a Korean lunchbox. And I made that all his favorite food, like including his injelmi, sweet chewy rice cake, coated soy powder. And 
I just talk to him just by myself, you know, just naturally. Father, <laughs> what are you doing? I just <laughs> came here. Oh, I wish I met you. Probably you will be proud of me if you know that I'm a monkey right now, you know. You know, even my father was, uh, when he was alive, he was so proud of me when I spoke English, even. Wow, mm. my daughter speaks English very well, you know. So now just if he knew that I'm a monkey teaching Korean cooking, many people follow mm. me, probably he'll be, you know, more proud of me. Monkey, thank you so much for being on Mill Street. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. That was YouTube star Mong Chi. Her new book is Mong Chi's Big Book of Korean Cooking, From Everyday Meals to Celebration Cuisine. I recently watched a YouTube video of Mong Chi making bean paste cookies. In it, she reminisced about looking at Korean sweets through a store window as a young child. But now she makes them at home, and she says, What a wonderful life I am living. You know, she demonstrates the same exuberance while cleaning a four-pound octopus, ripping the guts out of the head, and then massaging the tentacles. I grew up in an age of physical work, haying, milking, chopping, repairing, gardening, and cooking. Today we live in an age of ideas, not labor, and so I agree with Mong Chi. Cooking is indeed a wonderful life. After all, you can't eat an idea. It's time to chat with Lynn Clark about this week's recipe, savory bread pudding with mushrooms, gruyere, and tarragon. Lynn, how are you? I'm great, Chris. Bread pudding is one of my all-time favorite recipes. There's sort of custardy versions. There's rustic, chewy ones. I like them all. <laughs> and then someone suggested, why don't we do a savory bread pudding? This is something that might be served almost as an aside at a holiday table. And I don't usually like mixing sweet and savory, but here at Milk Street, we do that a lot. Yes. So we decided to go ahead and actually, I now think it's a fabulous recipe. So how do we start with the concept of bread pudding and end up with savory bread pudding? We took our inspiration from Tartine, which is a bakery in San Francisco. They just put out a new cookbook and in it is something that they serve at the bakery a lot, which is a savory bread pudding. And what she does is takes this base bread pudding and kind of changes it every day with what she's adding to it. It could be radicchio, it could be spinach, it could be any different type of cheese or herb. And so we're doing essentially the same thing here. We're creating a base and then you can mix in whatever you desire. Ours has mushrooms, tarragon and gruyere in it. We have another variation on the website and you can use basically anything you want. So how smart I am, we're starting with bread. So, so are we toasting brilliant. the bread on a brilliant, or are we just throwing the bread into a so bowl? So the base of this is, is similar to a sweet bread pudding. So we're taking our bread, cutting it into cubes. This is a white, crusty loaf of bread. We keep our crusts on. We like the chewy crust in here. We toss it with some oil and put it in the oven and really toast the bread. You want it to be almost like a crouton, not just dry it out. We want to get that really golden brown color on the bread. So is the rest of it pretty much business as usual, just substituting in savory ingredients, or is there some other trick to this? It's pretty simple. We're going to cook the mushrooms and the tarragon and then mix that in with the bread. One thing that we're doing here is adding a little bit of oil to the pan. It's three tablespoons of oil that goes in the baking pan. It seems like a lot, but what that does is really get a nice crispy crust on the bottom and sides of mm. that. So you've got that contrast between the crispy with this kind of tender interior of the custardy bread pudding. 
we mix those mushrooms in with the bread, put it in there, top it with some cheese, and then mm. we need our custard, obviously. So, so digging into it, it's a little crispy on the outside, a little custardy on the inside, and has a lot of bread to it, has the texture of the bread. Yes, exactly. So we've got the custard, which is 10 eggs. We're using a cup of heavy cream and three cups of broth. You can use chicken or vegetable broth. That makes it creamy, but not too rich. Sometimes they can be a little cloying. This kind of cuts that a little bit, but still savory. And then that gets poured over the top. You cover it and put it in the refrigerator for about an hour, or you can leave it in for 24 hours, which I think is great because then you can make it ahead and then just pull it out and bake it when you need it. Savory bread pudding with mushrooms, Gruyere, and tarragon. You successfully took sweet and made it savory. Not an idea I usually uh, love, but this one is absolutely terrific. Thank you, Lynn. You're welcome, Chris. You can get this recipe for savory bread pudding with mushrooms, Gruyere, and tarragon at MilkStreetRadio.com. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Alex I News explains why he thinks your next favorite kitchen gadget might be a 3D printer. We'll be right back. This is Christopher Kimball. You may have heard that we just started running international culinary tours. And one trip I am particularly excited about is Istanbul, which is based in part on my recent visit. Along with our partners at Culinary Backstreet's, we put together an itinerary that goes way beyond the Grand Bazaar. This May, we'll visit local neighborhood markets, take a sail up the Bosporus, and harvest vegetables from farms in the city's ancient moats. You'll sample Turkish cheeses, flatbreads, pistachios, pomegranate molasses, and olive oil. And since this is, in fact, a Milk Street trip, you'll use those ingredients in hands-on cooking classes with local families and chefs. There are just three spots left on our May trip, so visit 177milkstreet.com tours. That's 177milkstreet.com tours to claim your spot. Plus, listeners to our radio show save 5% with code Istanbul. This is Most Your Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Next up, Sarah Moulton and I will be taking a few more of your culinary questions. Are you ready? I am so ready. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Gina. Hi, Gina. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from Central Georgia. Okay. How can we help you today? Well, recently I made some steamed clams Mm, for a stuffed clam recipe from Martha Stewart. And I had all of this delicious broth left afterwards, and I hated to throw it away. I didn't know what else I could do with it. I hope you didn't throw it away. I didn't. <laughs> Yay! That is liquid gold. That I is know, the most flavorful I thought, what broth. What can I do? Well, you can use it in a pasta dish, you know, as your liquid. It, well, you know, it's clam juice, and it's much mm-hmm. better than the bottled stuff. So you could use it in pasta. You could add it to risotto. Or when cooking fish. Or cooking fish, you can make a terrific sauce out of it, you know, like saute up some onions and garlic and then some tomatoes, fresh tomatoes, and then add Mm. that broth and then, you know, serve that on, and then some butter to finish it off or some olive oil one way or the other. 
and it would freeze nicely. So, you know, when you just have it on hand. I oh, mean, I didn't even think about freezing oh, it. Yes, absolutely. I mean, when I make steamed clams, I make them as much for the broth as I do for the clams, you know, because uh-huh. I just love that broth. So I make grilled garlic bread. That's the point. It's, you know, we just stick our bread in the broth and get right. happy. In the classic Italian recipe, you steam the clams and then the juice is the sauce. Yes. Right? Yes. I mean, that's all it is. They, they don't really add anything else, maybe a little bit of white wine and right. some garlic. But, yeah, uh, yeah. I had put some garlic and some white wine in there, and it was a delicious recipe, and the broth was delicious. I ended up just using it with, I kept some of the clams and just made a small batch of clam chowder for us. But, oh, but nice. Those are all great ideas. Bloody Mary. Yes. Oh. That's even a better idea. Or a seafood gazpacho. That's the easy one, Seafood gazpacho, but that's more of a summer thing, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How much do you have left over, usually, when you do this? I probably had about maybe 12 ounces or so. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's pretty good. It seems like you're way ahead of us. Yeah, you're making me hungry, Gina. (laughs) Boy, that sounds good. I thought I love clams. tomatoes. Oh, oh, yummy. Sounds good. I'm actually trying a Milk Street recipe tonight. Which one? The um, Southeast Asian mushroom omelet. Oh, yeah. It's so interesting around the world. They do open-faced omelets, too, like in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. And, you know, of course, the French are fussy. Mm, fussy, so fussy. Uh, but <laughs> there's no, you don't have to fold an omelet over. You just have an open-faced right. omelet. You can, it's the all-purpose put-anything-in-the-eggs dish. Nice. Yeah. Huh. I was trying to get your goat. I didn't. No, you didn't. Uh, I'm sorry. sorry. You didn't rise to the bait <laughs> I when didn't. I said the French are fussy. Hey, listen, I never met an egg I didn't like, uh, so I'm happy nope. any which way. Jeannie, it sounds like you're a great cook, so yes. thanks for calling. I tried. Okay. okay. Don't throw out that clam juice. Oh, I certainly will not. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you for taking my call. Yeah, pleasure. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Doug Keck. Doug Keck from where? Lakeland, Florida. Okay. How can we help you today? Well, I was looking for a uh, recipe for falafels. I've seen so many different recipes, and some of them call for baking soda, some call for baking powder, some call for flour, some don't call for flour, some call for chickpea flour. I'm just trying to find a good recipe, but but I don't want to use canned chickpeas. No, no, you don't. It's really best to start with the dried, and uh, you need to soak them overnight, however. Right. And then you grind them up with the other ingredients. Right. I, I have a meat grinder. Oh. I tried a couple of different recipes, but I just wasn't satisfied with them. What did you not like about them? They seemed a little bit too dense. You might have ground them too fine. Yeah, I, I use my medium blade. I have three blades, a large one for like chili grind. Right. And then I have the medium one, and I have the very, very fine one. I use the medium size. Hmm. I'm going to offer a different point of view for a moment. Uh, Michael Solomonov, who's written a lot of books about Israeli cooking, like Israeli mm-hmm. soul, et cetera, Zahav. I've made his quick falafel recipe. He does use canned chickpeas, and it was incredibly simple, like five minutes to throw together and fry them. My feeling is hummus is all about the chickpeas, and so canned chickpeas and hummus is not great. But you're going to fry this, and you're going to put a bunch of stuff in it, you know, on top of it, and tahini and this and the other thing. So at the end of the day whether you're using real chickpeas that is, you know, raw or canned, I don't think makes a huge difference because you're frying it and you're adding the other ingredients. So I would strongly suggest you get hold of Solomonov's, one of his books, and those recipes are really simple to do. What I was saying is maybe I was adding a little bit too much flour. Probably. How much were you adding? Only a couple tablespoons. Mm -hmm. The recipe that I was using called for two cups of dried chickpeas. 
And that recipe didn't call for any flour at all. And was there an onion in there, too? Yeah, green onions, parsley, and cilantro. So the mixture came out fairly green. And garlic? Yeah, garlic, cumin, coriander, caraway, baking soda, cardamom, ginger, turmeric. Wow. I wonder if you even taste the chickpeas after you're done with that. Yeah, I bet you in a blind tasting you couldn't tell the difference by the time you're done between canned and, and fresh. I think the texture is different. I really do. Doug, I'm interested why you're adamant about using the dried chickpeas, which is the authentic way to do it, but I'm interested right. in why you right. care. Why do you care? Right. Well, for one thing, I have a ton of dried chickpeas at my house. <laughs> That's <laughs> an okay, excellent reason. Okay, now we get to the bottom of it. <laughs> He's got right. eight bucks of dried chickpeas okay, in his house. He wants right. to use them up. Okay, that's I fair. went to Amazon. I thought I ordered a pound, but it came in a five-pound bag. Okay. okay, well, that that was a critical piece of data. <laughs> Never <Right. have. laughs> yeah, I, I just make a ton of hummus. That's all. You do soak them overnight, is that correct? Yes, I do, yes. And then you drain and them? I mix all the ingredients together in a big mixing bowl. And then I put it through the meat grinder after everything's all mixed. Right, and you say it's too dense. It seems to be too dense, yeah. I think a food processor would more finely grind. You add a little water to it, as I remember. A food processor is what you want to use. That'll solve the texture problem. I'm also wondering, I mean, chickpea flour doesn't have gluten and would probably up the chickpea taste and still be a binder. Some recipes don't use any flour at At all. all. I would try that and use a food processor and see what that gets you. Okay, yeah. Yeah. All right, Doug, we're rooting for you. Yeah, here. Okay, it's a pleasure talking to yeah. you. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. Okay, thank you. This is Milk Street Radio. If you have a question, give us a ring, 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Catherine. Hi, Catherine. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from Savannah, Georgia. Oh, beautiful town. Yes. How can we help you today? Well, my favorite Mexican taqueria has a hot sauce that I'm trying to get some assistance in recreating. It's um, jalapeno-based, and it's very creamy, but according to the restaurant, they don't use dairy or avocado. Instead, the jalapenos are cooked in oil, and then the whole sauce is pureed. So I'd like some guidance from you all on how to accomplish that myself. It's so creamy, but no dairy whatsoever. Well, that could, that could happen, like, you know, when you puree the chilies with oil if you've cooked them slow. Is there other flavors in there, like garlic? There has to be some aromatics. I mean, it's very spicy, it's very piquant, but it's well-balanced. So there has to be some sort of aromatics, maybe even a little acid. Uh-huh. For starts, with the chilies, I would just put some garlic in there, too. Maybe whole garlic, whole chilies, cover them with oil, add some salt, and simmer it very slowly, you know, till they're very, very soft, about an hour to an hour and a half, and then puree them. It's pretty spicy, you said? It is. So yeah. they must leave the seeds and the ribs in. So then puree it with some acid and I don't know what else. I don't think you, you know, you can do this confit garlic in 15 or 20 minutes. I don't think it's an hour and a half. No, but you, I think you would get a much more tender. Well, i check it after half an hour. It might be ready a to go. A half an hour? Yeah, okay. I mean, just Stay see. Because the sauce is green, I'm pretty sure it's jalapenos. And there's, could I throw an, some onion in there sure. or just jalapeno and garlic? And uh, what type of oil would I use? Oh, I'd use a neutral oil, not olive oil. I'd use like grapeseed oil. Salt too. And salt, yeah. yeah. Definitely. Okay. Yeah, and just cook it as long as you need. And keep it at a sort of slow simmer for as long as you need to to really soften the chilies. And the oh. garlic, if you're going to add the yeah. garlic, yeah. 
Yeah, so just oil to cover and then simmer it slowly until they're nice and soft and then yeah. uh, stick it in a blender. Yeah, and I would use a blender, not a food processor, because blenders get right. things much smoother. Great. How long will it keep if it's confit like that? Won't it last a little bit longer? Well, no, because unless you put a fair amount of acid in there or some, you know, it needs a certain amount of acid. Because other mm. than that, you've got a basic vegetable, which is sort of a recipe for disaster without a lot of salt or acid or a significant amount of salt or acid. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay, so make sure it's refrigerated and just use it. Yeah, Sarah has this thing about not killing off our listeners. I don't, well, I don't know. no, this is true. You, you have to be careful. <laughs> well, a woman of great principle. Yes, really. Because it's delicious. So. Yeah. That's a good idea, though, for what? a chili, sort of confit chilies. Yes. That's a great idea. Yeah. Anyway, Catherine, let us know how it yeah. goes, how it comes I out. Will. Thanks a lot. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for calling. All right. Okay. Take, Take care. care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is Most Eat Radio. Now it's time for some culinary wisdom from one of our listeners. Hello, this is Jonathan from Visalia, California, and I have a quick tip on making chocolate chip cookies. Next time you're making your cookies, try browning your butter in a medium saucepan until it starts to turn, well, brown, and add it to your batter. The browned butter will add some nuttiness and some richness Um, It'll be something new if you're burnt out of making regular chocolate chip cookies. Um, If it's too hot, you can always add a little extra butter, maybe a few tablespoons to cool it back down if you're in a hurry. Otherwise, completely let it cool and add it to your batter, and it makes a great difference. Happy baking! If you'd like to share your own cooking tip on Milk Street Radio, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash radiotips. Next up, it's Mad French food scientist, Alex Inews. Alex, how are you? I'm good, I'm good, I'm superb. And the question I have in mind this week is about 3D printers. So it, it might sound a bit surprising to talk about 3D printers uh, in a kitchen situation, in a cooking situation, but, but I wanted to ask myself, like legitimately, would a 3D printer have a dedicated spot in our kitchens right now or in the future. So just to give you some context, I have a studio here in Paris. It's mostly a professional kitchen, but it's also a maker space. I've got blenders and power drills, but I've also got uh, 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 jigsaws and, and, and 3D printers and ovens and pans. So everything is a bit mixed up. And that 3D printer is standing in the center of all this. And I thought, well, I could use that for cooking purposes. So, so give me an example of how you use a 3D printer in gastronomy. Yes. Uh, a, a 3D printer, if, if, if people are not familiar with it, it's, it's made to print things with volume. So having a printer like this is like having replacement parts available 24-7. So for example, I broke the knob of my oven that's easy to fix with a 3D printer. I just went online, click, click, click. I found a 3D uh, objects bank and there was a, an oven knob, downloaded the thing, printed it, and then I installed mm. it back in, in my oven. I, I think that's brilliant. What, what do you think? It's just, no? Well, I... <laughs> I'm very excited. You, you don't seem to be as excited as no, I am. No, I, 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 I'm waiting to get to the point of the edible oven knob. But yes, I think that is brilliant. I, I think that's great. I use it mainly as a tool. 
So for example, I created a stand support for my temperature probe and now it's sitting right above the stove. I made a different shape for my uh, frying pan handle because I thought it, this wasn't very practical to do stir fry. So I thought of another shape. I 3D printed it and it's working. Not that bad. <laughs> I wouldn't call this a success, but it's not that bad. My point is, I think it's useful. Like, let's say you're working in a bakery. A piece on the oven had just broke. The whole production stops, basically. But now you can fix that using that 3D printer in the bakery. Just online, click, 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 get the new part done. The oven is back in action. In a professional environment, that's priceless. Uh, okay, your 3D printer is going to produce parts that need to be used to fix uh, an appliance. My 3D printer, I'm going to have a button that says Dacquois, and I'm going to have a button that says Genoise, <laughs> and I'll have a button that says Cheeseburger, and I'm just going to press... No, uh, yeah, that's, that's, the old Jetsons, that. that's the old sci-fi stuff from the 50s, right? You, you go to the kitchen, press the button, and it just it prints out your dinner, right? No, you will never do that. I do not believe you a single moment. The first reason I know your your, your opinion about sous vide cooking, yeah, who are way less geeky than a 3D printer. So you will never, you, you enjoy cooking way too much, Chris, I think. That's true. You see, I know you now. That's not, so. that's not you, can't, you can't use my own words against me. I think I just did. I think you just did. Alex Inews, looking forward to the 3D printer in the kitchen. Uh, and again, I, I want the button for Dacquaz. <laughs> I think it would be fun. Alex, thank you. Thank you so much. That was YouTube host Alex Inews. He's also author of Just a French Guy Cooking. You know, 3D printers have come a long way from just making spare parts. You can make a 3D model of your unborn child. You can make a suit of plate mail, the sort worn in medieval Europe, to fit Barbie dolls. You can print your own bikini. And scientists are working on a project to print meat. Just like my iPhone, I hope the 3D printer goes beyond its original mission. Someday, I hope it will be able to print those lost car keys. That's it for today. If you tune in too late or just want to listen again, you can download and subscribe to Milk Street Radio wherever you find podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, watch the new season of our television show, browse our online store, or order our latest cookbook. The new rules, recipes that will change the way you cook. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, on Instagram and Twitter at 177milkstreet. We'll be back next week, and thanks, as always, for listening. Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Annie Sinzabaugh. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak. Production assistant, Stephanie Cohn. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, David Goodman. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick, Sydney Lewis, and Samantha Brown. And audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chubup Crew. Additional music by George Brennell Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. Mm-hmm.